This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It's the 20th of July. Scientists tell us that nature provides benefits to people worth trillions of dollars a year, from the air that we breathe to the soils that we grow our food in. But is putting a dollars and cents value on nature the right way to truly measure the worth of nature? Or are there different ways to value nature that better reflect the needs and benefits across society? Recently, the United Nations Science Advisory Panel for Biodiversity, known as IPEPS, looked at this complex issue and found that there are dozens of ways to measure nature's value to society. Today, we speak with one of the co-chairs of the IPEPS report, Dr. Michael Christie, from Aberystwyth University in Wales. Welcome to the show, Mike. Yes, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Mike, when most of us see a forest or a lake or a wild animal, we don't necessarily see them in monetary terms. For us, their value could be recreational or even spiritual. But yet nature has immense value to all of us. Could you give us some examples of that? Yes, nature provides us with multiple benefits. And we've recently published an intergovernmental panel on the values of nature. And what the values assessment does, it's a most comprehensive review of the multiple ways people interact with and benefit from nature. So if I give an example of a forest, a forest provides multiple benefits to people. So first of all, we've got the timber value of forest. So we know that there's a market for timber and there's an economic benefit from that. But sometimes a forest may have more benefits if it's standing, if it's left alone. So for example, there may be a recreation value. So people walk in the forest, people observe nature in the forest. Forests also sequester carbon. So it's a storage of carbon and reduces the impacts of climate change. Some forests might reduce flood risk by slowing down the passage of water. And in certain parts of the world, forests may have spiritual values. So there may be certain trees that are sacred. So there's a whole bunch of ways in which nature or a forest can benefit people. And what the values assessment does is creates a typology of these different types of values. And it's the most comprehensive typology of what we have uh, developed. So this typology recognizes various layers of values. So we start off by thinking about people's different worldviews about their interaction with nature. So those worldviews may be linked to a Western scientific viewpoint where we might have a kind of scientific understanding of forests and its ecosystem services, so its benefits. Another worldview may be from indigenous communities. And these communities live in a forest and fulfill part of those forests. So the way we think about nature and its values very much depends on our worldviews. A second layer is what we call broad values, or these are the deep-held values we have for nature within society. 
And broad value may be social norms. So social norms, maybe we might not pick wildflowers, we might not catch small fish, we might not litter in forest. So these are social norms and they are deeply held values within society. Another aspect of broad values is the policies we have. So the policies for protected areas, the policies to reduce pollution. So these broad, deep held values are values embedded within the institutions of society. So nature has this whole range of different values. And what the values assessment does is try and capture that diversity of values and make it explicit within the decisions that we have. Thanks, Mike. But why is it important for us to consider the different ways of valuing nature, especially for governments or policymakers? Why is this so crucial now? So one thing the values assessment identifies is a lot of the decisions we make is based on a narrow set of values. So for example, if you think about business, a business thinks about the market values and looking at profits. So their focus is to maximize profit and that often ignores other values. If we think of governments overall, governments measure performance through gross domestic product. So again, another economic indicator. And there's lots of evidence to show that that focus on profit, on maximizing GDP, has led to the destruction of nature. So we've seen climate change. We've seen uh, lots of habitats being destroyed or degraded. Another example of a narrow focus of values is that often protected areas, particularly in Africa in the past, has seen this focus on solely protecting nature for its intrinsic values. And that has seen communities being removed from protected areas. So again, that is impacting the welfare of those communities. So the narrow focus on certain types of values means that overall, those decisions of governments or businesses are unsustainable. So what we suggest in the values assessment is when governments or businesses make decisions, we need to consider the whole range of values uh, within those decisions, not just see profit. Uh, An example of this happening is there are a bunch of new ways in which governments can measure green GDP. So for example, the United Nations is developing a system of environmental economic accounting. And what that's trying to do is incorporate measures of the environment or impacts on the environment when we think about economic growth. So we're trying to be much more holistic in measuring the performance of of a country. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, Mike, let's talk a little bit more about the EPEBS report, which was, I think, four years in the making, so that's quite extensive. So what are the main recommendations to help policymakers understand the different ways in which people conceive and value nature? For example, could you explain the four general perspectives to help policymakers approach valuing nature and natural capital? So, yes, uh, the values assessment, as you say, took four years to uh, develop. Uh, It involved contributions from over 200 people, and we added it up all our time, and it took about 19 years of 
free input from mostly academics, but policymakers to create this report. So you talked about what policymakers need to do in terms of value, nature and natural capital. So one of the recommendations of a report is that if we want to develop society and our economy sustainably, we need transformative change. So it's very clear that the current status quo or business as usual isn't sustainable. So we're getting economic growth at the cost of the environment, at the cost of social cohesion. So in the values assessment, we identify what we call four leverage points that can help policymakers achieve a just and sustainable future. So these four leverage points, and they kind of build on each other, first of all is we need to undertake comprehensive valuation of nature. So when we make decisions, we need to recognize the impact of those decisions on nature. So whether it's impact on carbon emissions and climate change, whether it's impact on habitats, etc. So just recognizing the impacts of decisions is the first small step. Next, we need to try and undertake valuation. So we need to utilize a whole range of different tools to value those different elements of nature's values that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And we need to include those values in the decisions we make. This is already happening to a certain extent. Uh, So within cost-benefit analysis, uh, governments will try and internalize the externality costs. Uh, So an externality cost is external costs or impacts on nature. And what we try and do is measure those impacts and feed them in cost-benefit analysis. So to a certain extent, that is happening uh, and we can design policies to try and internalize those impacts. The next leverage point is we need to better reform policies, better reform regulations, and make sure that the institutions, so the governments, the policies, businesses, all really embrace the full range of values uh, within nature. So that goes beyond what governments are currently doing. So an example of that might be rather than using GDP, we use a green measure of GDPs. So uh, a measure such as inclusive wealth that not only looks at economic performance of a country, but looks at how it's performing in terms of the impact in nature and in terms of social health and other well-being indicators. Finally, we need to shift social norms and goals. So we need to change the way people, businesses and governments act. So we need to try and mobilize sustainability-aligned values So what that means is that every decision we make, we need to make sure that long-term sustainability is working. So as an example of that, if we consider, uh, certainly in the UK what's happening, there's been an increased recognition of the impact of plastics in the ocean. And one of the social changes that we've done is that rather than getting a free plastic bag when you go shopping, you have to pay five pence for it. And there's been an education advertising campaign for it as well. So what now happens is everybody brings a recyclable bag for a shopping. So that's an example of a shift in social norms. So we bring our own bag shopping rather than using 
uh, on the recyclable plastic bags. So those are the four steps that we wish to promote to try and get transformative change. So recognize the values, undertake valuation, embrace those values in the policy reforms, and then get a complete shift in the way that institutions and social norms act. And hopefully we can get to a much more sustainable future. Thanks, Mike. I guess there are some, um, like the example you mentioned about the plastic bags, um, there are some actions that that are quite easy to take uh, in order to benefit biodiversity. But achieving this perfect balance is quite impossible in some other examples. So for instance, uh, recently as countries move to deal with climate change, we see that um, the push for renewables is sometimes coming at a cost to biodiversity if wind or solar farms are built in bird habitats, for example. Do you think such conflicts or tensions can be resolved? Yes, I think every decision requires trade-offs. And the role of policymakers and society is to try and think about what trade-offs we make. And those trade-offs we need to think both in the short term, but also for the long term. And one of the issues in addressing those trade-offs is dealing with power imbalances. So often decisions uh, are based on those more powerful actors. So for example, whether it's a wind farm or whether uh, it's building a new road or a new dam, often the short-term economic factors lead to that decision. And, and what often happens is those more marginalized communities or individuals get impacted. So we're seeing that focus on that narrow set of market values leading to impacts on on other people uh, or at least ignoring them. So what we want to try and promote is ways in which we can reconcile those different conflicts. And so what we want to try and do is ensure that decisions account for the values of all affected partners or people. So we want to ensure that everybody's voices is heard in decisions. And the values assessment promotes a number of different approaches for doing that. The first approach is just simply recognizing all the values and including those values in decisions. So we look at the economic values of the wind farm, we look at the impacts on the wildlife, and we try and weigh them up. Another approach is that we we have deliberation. So we, we get all the voices or all effective parties together and we get them to discuss the pros and cons of different development projects, so the pros and cons of wind farms, and they can raise their concerns. And what we can do through the deliberation is to reconcile those different values and hopefully come up with a shared set of values which tries to reduce some of those conflicts. So, Mike, just as a final question, with more and more people shifting to cities and becoming detached from nature, what do you think is the best way for them to be reconnected? So I think this last year uh, across the world, there is more people living in cities compared to the countryside. So we went over that threshold of 50% of people living in cities. And clearly that is a big issue if people don't interact with nature, they don't know where food comes from, they don't realize the importance of nature. Uh, so I think one very important element is education. So we need to start 
with primary school kids and secondary school syllabuses to just get people really understand and appreciate the importance of nature, both in terms of food production, but also in terms of storing carbon to reduce climate change, the importance of habitats uh, for clean air and for recreation experience, etc. So education is really important. We need to find ways of getting people out into nature. And some of that may be what people can do at home and in cities. So maybe within cities, we can rewild some of our park rather than having manicured lawns. We can have wild meadows. We can try and create space for wildlife so people see wildlife around them and really, really appreciate it. So that's one way. I think within people's gardens, if, if they've got a garden, again, they can have wild spaces within that. They can have bird boxes to attract birds, uh, have flowers to attract pollinators. So again, that's really important just to allow people to connect with nature. So education, raising awareness is really important uh, and trying to get people to connect with nature, whether within the city or providing opportunities outside it uh, and include nature within the kind of education curriculum so the next generation feel much more connected. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike, to explain all about the latest report. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And if people are interested, they can find uh, summaries of the report in the IBES website, so the Intergovernmental Panel for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. If you do search for that, you should find more information. Great. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.